0: Everybody has an opinion. Everybody thinks they can tell you how to run your business. And I used to listen to all this stuff. Then I stopped. But at the end of the day, I know best. And I have to just trust myself. You're
1: listening to Femcanic Garage, the podcast that features women in the automotive and motorsports industries, a community that elevates, empowers, and evolves by smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers for women. I'm your host, Jamie Blosman. Buckle up for the ride, film mechanics. Calling all women who love their ride. I would like to introduce you to a -a one-of-a-kind women's motor fest. You will not want to miss this sisterhood celebration of women-owned whips. Cars, trucks, motorcycles, ATVs. If it has a motor, it belongs. Ladies, this is our MotorFest. Boys are welcome to attend, but the spotlight will be owned by the women in their whips. Check out all the details by visiting womensmotorfest.com. Christy Shipke is in the driver's seat today. Christy is the owner and designer of Crash Jewelry. She came up with the idea to create fashion jewelry from wrecked exotic cars when she moved her studio into her husband's Los Angeles body shop. Christy makes jewelry from discarded automotive metal, and her first obstacle was trying to figure out how to bend the metal from these exotic cars while preserving the original factory paint. Now let's sit back and enjoy the ride. Hello FemCanics, this is Jamie B, and I have Christy Schimpke. I said it right and I did not add the R, didn't I?
0: Exactly. Perfect.
1: We're just joking around about how you have a nickname and they add an R to your last name and call you Shrimpky. (laughs) (laughs) That is not the correct pronunciation, listeners. It is (laughs) Shimky. So, Christy, thank you for accepting my invitation, for being in the driver's seat today on the Femcanic Garage podcast. I am very glad you're here. Thank you. So I'm glad to be here. And I am excited to share your story because it is yet another facet of this industry.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) And it's jewelry. I've been trying to find the right person to talk about jewelry that is automotive centric. And I am so glad that you are the first one. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you. I've had different artists on the show, painters, but you are the first automotive centric jewelry maker. Before we do the spoiler alert, everyone knows with the bio and everything what you do at a high level, but there's a unique twist to what you do. But before we get into that, one of my favorite things of all time is learning a woman's journey to where she is at right now, because with social media and all of the... I don't know. Social media in general makes everything seem so easy Mm -hmm. and it's not. (laughs) It's hard work. Yeah. Right? It is. You go to your Instagram and your posts and you see this beautiful jewelry. I mean, gorgeous. And I'm looking at it, drooling over it. And that's the end product, Mm -hmm. right? There's a lot that goes into it to get to that point. Now, did you always know that you were going to end up in the automotive industry in some way? Uh no,
0: not not at all. This was something I never in a million years would have thought I'd be in the automotive industry in any sort of capacity, I guess.
1: We talked about this, but just so the listeners can be brought up to speed. When you went to college,
0: what was your majors? Uh art history. So undergrad art history and then graduate school art history with a specialization in Renaissance portraiture.
1: I'm just sitting there like in my brain, <laughs> like envisioning your jewelry and ah, Chrissy, I have a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. I'm checking myself. I'm like, God, they they grow up so dang fast. I'm like, is that even possible? <laughs> she's going to be 15. She's not 15, but mm-hmm. she's like the 14 going on 18 type. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And when I sit there and I'm having these, what my kids call me lecturing, mm-hmm. <laughs> Actual, legitimate, useful life lessons that goes in one ear and out the other type of thing. (laughs) Parent lecturing. I've had the conversation with them around don't feel pressured to decide what you want to major in. And don't feel pressured to have to go to college even. Maybe a trade school is what's best for you. Maybe it's working a little bit first. Mm -hmm. Keep your options open. Don't let society pressure you into things follow your gut, right? Yeah. And I keep telling him, I'm like, don't decide on what you want to major on. Here is an example where you major in art history. Now, there's definite art to what you do, right? Mm-hmm. But there's not a direct correlation there, <laughs> you
0: know, when <laughs> no, you're thinking about no.
1: renaissance. Right. And forgive me, what was the second part of that, the focus?
0: Um, portraiture.
1: So portraits. Right. So here you are, you go to college, you get your degrees now you're done. What did Christy do after that point?
0: Well, I should tell you, it took me a long time to even get through college. (laughs) So um, when you were talking- Ditto sister. Yeah. When you were talking about what you talked to your kids about, I was not prepared to go to college and I didn't know what I wanted to do. My parents wanted me to be a business major, which I could care less about. So, but I did, I went in as a business major and hated it. And Basically, dropped out. So, I didn't go back to college until I was probably in my late 20s. And by that time, I was ready, you know. So, it took a while. I had to travel, I had to work, I had to, you know, just sort of sort things out. And I didn't know what I wanted to do either. But I had a mentor, you know, when I was in college, an art history professor that just blew me away. And that's, I think, really helped form my passion for art. So it took a while. And then once I got out of graduate school, well, I should say during graduate school, I had an internship at the Getty Museum. So I would travel back and forth. Can
1: you help people understand the Getty Museum? Because that's a pretty prominent museum. And I don't want to just glaze over it. Sure. Because it's a teaching opportunity. Sure.
0: Yeah. It's a big place uh, in that They have, I think, seven institutes. The museum is just considered one part, one institute actually. So there's the research institute, there's the conservation institute, there's the education institute. I can't even remember all of them. Actually, I worked in the research institute and then also in the sort of information technology part and then at the museum. So I worked in three different institutes uh, while I was there. So yeah, it's a great place. It's like a campus almost. And um, most people don't realize that that the Getty does have all these extra institutes attached to it. So It's massive yeah. and very respected. Yes, it is. It's an amazing collection. And I'm just talking about the one that I worked at, which was in Brentwood up on the hill. There is the original Getty. Villa in California, right? Yeah, in California, uh, Los Angeles area. Yeah, and then there's the original Getty Villa, which is in Malibu, which houses the Greek, Roman, Etruscan, you know, the ancient art. And that was the original location of the museum where everything was. And then the collection just grew. At that time, too, the institutes were located in all different places, like satellite campuses. So when they moved up on the hill in Brentwood, California, that's when everything came together, with the exception of the villa.
1: So you spent time there. Mm -hmm. About how long were you there?
0: Well, let's see. So uh, my last year of graduate school, I got an internship. So I worked there during grad school. I worked there about a year. And then when I graduated, because I had already worked there and made some connections, I was able to get a contract position at the Research Institute, which was very fortunate because I got to tell you, it's hard to get a job in art history if you're not teaching. It's super hard. Yeah. So I worked there about eight years, I guess.
1: Wow. And I like connecting the dots here. And what I mean by that is sometimes we all get frustrated in where we're currently at, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have this dream and this thing that we want to do. But yet sometimes we view as where we're at right now as a barrier, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Almost like a negative thing. And what I like reminding listeners, and quite honestly, to hear myself say it out loud for me Mm -hmm. too, is that sometimes where we're at, there's amazing lessons and opportunities, networking, fill in the blank, that actually helps you in your long-term goal. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. While you were there eight years, I mean, that's a significant amount of time looking to see where you're at now. Would you say what you're doing now is kind of like your happy place or kind of like your home? There isn't parts of it that you don't love or that you don't get frustrated, right? Yes. But when I launched Femcanic Garage, it was like a coming home for me. It's like, this is what I'm meant to do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Do you feel that way about crash jewelry?
0: Absolutely. I mean, as a kid, I was always drawing, painting. Making things, you know, very much into crafts with my grandmother and sewing. And I think I was just always, as an adult, kind of a frustrated artist. So art history kept me connected to that side of me, but in a more academic way. But I still got to be around art all the time, but I just wasn't creating it. So when I finally got to where I am now, I realized this is my passion. This is what I really was meant to do. And, uh, what I love to do.
1: When you spent the eight years there, what do you think from that experience, you can see a direct impact through experience, lessons learned, fill in the blank to what you're doing now?
0: Well, computer skills, (laughs) I guess that's, that's a, a big one. Organizational techniques, I guess, uh, or practices, the ability to speak, in front of people that was kind of a big one because we had to do that at various conferences and things like that also just learning more uh, getting out of my area of specialization and learning about all aspects of art you know including environmental art you know uh, abstract art you know things that i didn't know that much about which have influenced what i do today i think when i'm making something i think i am sort of subconsciously recalling a certain painting or sculpture or, you know, period of art.
1: That's so cool.
0: It's just so
1: cool. So after you spent your time at Getty, was there an event that happened in your life or something? Or maybe it was just like, hey, it's time. What made you switch?
0: Well, I kind of hit a wall as far as career growth went. And it just got to be, uh, how do I say it? Everybody there... (laughs) I hope I'm not offending anybody, but everybody there is what I call a lifer. You know, they got very comfortable in their position. The Getty's a nonprofit. You're pretty much limited on what you can make, you know, salary wise. But it's a great place to work because you're not really pushed. You can spend your whole day, you know, just working on one, I don't know, research painting, you know, and it's like being in college almost. So there isn't any real impetus to get outside yourself or get outside or to grow. In other words, there wasn't anything to challenge me. And uh, it just, frankly, it just got to be really kind of boring. And uh, the other thing that was really frustrating is that I'm a pretty proactive person and that is not something that's really encouraged in that environment. You know, you had to have a meeting about everything. Like you couldn't just make a decision and go forward. You know, it was like, we have to have a meeting about metadata and then, a meta meeting about metadata, you know, That's so true. Yeah, like the bureaucracy was stifling after a point. Yeah, and uh, I guess I just don't do well with bureaucracy. Yeah, I'm with
1: you, Christy. At my quorum, I'm an implementer. Yeah, and you mix that with my ADHD and having meetings about meetings about meetings. Like I'm like, oh <laughs> my god, can we just actually do something already? Do it. I know. Like, oh. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah. What was next for Christy after
0: your experience there? Well, I worked with a startup and (laughs) that kind of went bust. Uh, I was a taxonomist, uh, which is basically somebody who organizes subject matter within a hierarchy. Uh, I worked
1: there. And then for the first time... Can you give me an example? Give me an example because I'm going to totally make fun of myself right now. When you first said that the visual that popped into my head was taxidermy.
0: I know, I know. I never heard of this term before.
1: (laughs) And I'm like, wait, (laughs) you coordinated stuffed animal? So I'm totally making fun of myself right now. It took me a minute to process that. But for those that are way smarter than me or listen way better than me, you can tune out in this part. But for the people who maybe don't know, can you explain a little bit what that is, what that means?
0: My background, too, I I worked a lot in library science. I was a cataloger for a while. So it kind of employed those skills, which is basically you take like an umbrella subject, let's say cars, and then you start breaking it down into finer and finer and finer details. Gotcha. So it's just like this hierarchy of subject
1: matter. So it's like a car, Mm -hmm. then it's, you know, chassis maybe. Yeah. And then you drill down to fenders and then maybe rivets or...
0: Yes. Gotcha. You just keep drilling down. Exactly. Gotcha. And it's kind of like, you know, when you see how like websites are built, kind of like that. It's a lot like that, actually. Yeah. So it wasn't the most exciting job, but, you know, I left the Getty, so it wasn't like I was going to go back. And, uh, well, the company went under. And for the first time ever, I found myself unemployed. You know, it was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So after a few months, I got a job at UCLA uh, managing the architecture and interior design department.
1: Wow. Hold up. I want to connect the dots here a little bit. Okay. Do you have any kiddos? No. No kiddos. UCLA. Architecture and interior. So, little fun fact about me, Christy. When I went to college, I was originally majoring in architecture.
0: Ah, okay. So,
1: I went to Ohio State University with the intent of getting an architecture degree. Mm-hmm. And I finished my first year, got my portfolio all done and everything. I went and shadowed an architect that summer, and I'm like, "Nope, not what I want to do." Because <laughs> what I wanted to do was such a small percentage. That, you know, you think of Frank Lloyd Wright and like the opportunity to be creative when the majority of architects are, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but you have the big box companies that need the licensed person to sign off on their designs. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's not a ton of creativity because they're trying to keep things in a certain budget the majority of the time.
0: Exactly, And
1: that wasn't, I'm like, me. You know what I mean? Yeah. So architecture and interior design. Now, when you say you manage that department, for those of us who are not in academia, what does that mean exactly?
0: Um, I manage the program. So it was everything from hiring faculty to overseeing their class subject matter, helping the students. So like the
1: professors?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Look at you go (laughs) at UCLA too. Yeah. So it was just, you know, I mean, there were people that were, you know, you had people that were in charge of student needs and then we had different people within the department. So I sort of oversaw all that. And then I was directly under the head of the department who was an architect.
1: You're so modest about it. You're just kind of like glazing over it. <laughs> like- <laughs> I, it's funny. I just don't see it that way. You know, it's, uh- and it's at UCLA. I mean, it's not like everyone have heard of UCLA. (laughs) It's not a small school. So you did that for how long?
0: Um, I did that for about three years. And then I moved into another position where I managed the chair's office in the psychology department, which was one of the biggest departments on campus. And um, I was there for, oh gosh, I want to say five years, maybe.
1: So UCLA for about eight years. Yeah. Is it at that point that you started to get a calling?
0: Uh, Yeah, I was really unhappy with my job in the psychology department, because there was so many politics. Everybody is fighting for money, and it can get pretty nasty.
1: And it's kind of like... And by the way, that's not uncommon, Yeah, right? That's not a UCLA thing. Yeah. So it's not throwing shade on UCLA. No, 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 no. This yeah. is an everywhere
0: thing, right? It is. It is. Everybody's trying to get grant money. They're trying to do everything they can to stay viable. And I was kind of having to referee this because the chair would just close the door and, you know, and go into his office. And I was like the front line, you know? And so after a while, it was just really wearing on me. And about this time I met now my husband, Dan, and we were, had started seeing each other and he has a body shop. And I had no idea. I mean, I always took my car to the same guy. I didn't have any accidents. I didn't have any experience in that area at all. So, Dan and I moved in together for a year. We got engaged and. Christy, I got to pause you because in
1: the pre interview, we talked about something. Uh Do you mind sharing how the two of you met? Oh, yeah. We met online
0: and it was pretty funny. I saw a picture.
1: Wait, I want to preface. There is nothing wrong with meeting someone online. No. You know, I met someone online too. And the thing is, sometimes I feel like there's this old, worn out, I don't know. Like when you tell people that, do you ever. Maybe it was just me where it's like, oh boy, where sometimes it feels like judgment. Like a stigma or something about it. Yeah, Yeah. like a
0: stigma. It's like, what's wrong with that? I don't know. I think it's brilliant. (laughs) Not anymore because everybody meets everybody online these days. Yeah. It's hard to meet people. I mean, where are you going to go? A bar, you know, or a friend of a friend. Work. Do you really want to? Yeah, work. No. Been there, done that. It doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah. But like I said, I'm pretty proactive and I was coming out of a five-year relationship with someone who was never going to commit. So, I just decided to pull the band-aid off and I like to get things done. <laughs> so, I was not getting any younger. I get it. <laughs> so, so, I go online and I find Dan and he's standing in front of his vintage BMW motorcycle with this leather jacket. He's got this wild hair and I'm like, "Oh yeah, he looks like a bad guy, you know. A <laughs> oh, bad boy." <laughs> <laughs> Look at you go. And so I approached him because like I told you yesterday, I was not within his search parameters because I was <laughs> too old because he was looking for someone younger because you know he wanted to have kids. But he approached me, you know, after that we started communicating and then he said, "Let's just get off this platform and talk." So we started talking. And then our first date was a bike ride, which turned into dinner. And then from that point on, we were practically never apart. Wow. So it was just like one of those things where you just know you met the right person after all these years of not finding the right person. You know, it's kind of like you're going to go for it. Would you
1: say when you meet the right person, It's almost like effortless.
0: Yes. It's like easier. Yes. So much easier. It's not work. No. And it's still not work after all these years. How long have you guys been together now? Well, 18 years, actually. 18 years. Yeah, and it still feels like yesterday. It's amazing. Christy, you have to
1: dig up that picture. Oh, well, I know. Of him with the crazy hair on the motorcycle so that we can include it in the trailer videos. I don't know what your husband looks like, but I'm trying to imagine this man standing in front of a motorcycle with like crazy Einstein hair or something. I don't know.
0: <laughs> He's never owned a brush or comb in his life, you know? <laughs> It's amazing. He just puts his hands, fingers through his hair. He's good to go. Oh, so, that's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, he's very, very low maintenance, let me tell you. That is so cool. Yeah. And he's still in that industry, is that correct? Yeah. So he's on the back end of the shop, more like the, uh, he oversees the production. He's a real car geek from Detroit. Family worked for Ford, grew up around cars. Builds cars. Right now, he's kind of overseeing everything, but eventually he wants to get back to building cars. That's awesome. So, here you
1: meet this person, right? Mm -hmm. And you're getting ready to leave your job. Yeah. I mean, talk about a lot of changes in your life, right? Yeah. Just poof. And take me to that next step because you meet him at that point, crash jewelry isn't even a thing.
0: No, it's not a thing. And so, still working at UCLA. And I came home from work one night and I was really upset something that had happened. And he said, why don't you just quit? And I was like, well, I I can quit. I can do that, you know, (laughs) because I told you. That's possible? Yeah. I mean, I've always been very independent. And this is my second marriage. My first marriage, we had separate bank accounts. Everything was separate. So when I met Dan, everything was inclusive. It's not mine or yours. It's ours. So in a weird way, that was hard for me to get used to, you know, like to trust this person. Yeah. So like I said yesterday, one of the things I always admired about Dan is no matter what, he got up every morning at 4 or 5 a.m., happy to go to work, excited to go to work, felt very passionate about what he did. And I never had that, never felt that way. And I was kind of like, you know, I would really love to feel like that sometime, so we had talked about it when he said, why don't you just quit after the wedding? Just quit. Why don't you take some time off and figure out what you want to do? And I was like, really? Uh, I can do that. you know?" So that's what I did. And uh, just took some time and did some different things. And uh, it took a little while to get to crash, but. Finally got there. There's kind of
1: a baby step. Yeah. And it may seem like I'm really drilling deep here, but there's a lesson in this journey and story, just like every woman has that. And I want to pull it out. Make sure people really get it is that the idea is to put one foot in front of the other. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like you saw someone that loved what he does. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, heck, if he can have that, why can't I? Right. It does exist. Right. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. It does exist. I don't know about you, Chrissy, but sometimes when I hear certain things, and that thing is the thing I want, but it seems so out there, like so Disney-like, right? Unattainable, unreal. Mm-hmm. Because maybe I haven't seen it yet with anyone around me, right? Do you know what I mean? Fill in the blank, right? That's true. When you were inspired by it, then the next thing is you actually did jewelry making before Crash, but it wasn't
0: Crash. Right. So I uh, started taking a a lot of classes in metalsmithing. And I also had a mentor that I was working with. And I was just really eager to learn as much as I could as quickly as possible. So after a while, I got pretty good at working with silver and gold jewelry. And How long did that take you? It took about a year and a half, I would say. It's important for
1: people to get. It's not like you took one class and boom. No. It just happened. No. I
0: have certain skills. But there's other skills I don't have, you know, like stone setting, for example there's that's something that someone is highly trained to do, and that might be all they do. So I started a jewelry company called Minabe, which was my grandmother's name, and it was just more traditional type jewelry, you know, like you'd see, maybe on Etsy or something like that. So I'd been doing that for about uh maybe two years at that time, my studio, I was working out of a friend's garage. <laughs> And I was able to move into one of Dan's garages at work. So I actually moved everything over there and he gave me a space and it was in the garage. And every day when I was working, I would see all the cars come in that were gonna be repaired. And I I mean, they were beautiful because they work mostly on high-end luxury cars and exotics. So here I am around, you know, I see a Bentley come in and Windsor Blue. And I'm thinking, you know, like, I wonder what happens to this metal? You know, Where does it go? Because the paint especially reminds me of enamel. It's so beautiful. And I wonder if there's anything I can do with this metal. So it just sort of started as an idea. And mind you, this was during the time when precious metal prices were going berserk through the roof. And I just couldn't compete anymore. It was really hard as an independent small business to compete with the big businesses. And there were a lot of people like me. So I wonder if I can take this discarded sheet metal and preserve the original factory paint and actually make jewelry from it. So, it started as an idea and then I had to figure it out. That's kind of how it started.
1: From the time frame that you started your first metalworking class mm-hmm. to you closing the doors on your first jewelry making business, what was that time like just to put it in perspective for the listeners?
0: Um, let's see. So I would say, I'd say about five years.
1: Again, it may seem like I'm really digging in deep, but it's so important for people to hear and understand that this stuff takes time. And in a world where everything is instant gratification, Mm -hmm. and there's no true delayed gratification, to really hone your craft just takes time and diligence and practice.
0: And practice. Back then, I worked every single day on projects, not necessarily that I was going to sell, but just to learn you know after a certain point, you know you develop the confidence to just keep going and expanding and if it means taking another class here and there, you know so be it
1: so the precious metal prices were flying up just skyrocketing mm-hmm. Was that the only determining factor that had you make the switch
0: um no, I mean you know, I feel like everybody was doing what I was doing. I wanted to do something different that nobody else was doing. And I don't know how this is going to sound, but from a marketing perspective, to me, it made a lot of sense because not only is no one else really doing this, which gives me a leg up, it reaches a whole different audience of car enthusiasts. And Also, it gives me an opportunity to have this symbiotic relationship with my husband. So there was a lot of different things going for it. And it has this great backstory. So way more interesting than what I was doing (laughs) before. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The stories are amazing. And there's one thing I want to point out. When I was reading through your material, Christy, you make it a point to make sure that people understand that the metal that you're using in those accidents, no one was injured, right? It's not like you're using materials from someone who was in a horrific crash that may have passed away. Right. Right. This is for the most part, simple fender benders or mm-hmm. it may be a little more, but no one's ever been. Yeah.
0: Usually if a crash is that bad and it doesn't take a whole lot to total a car these days, the car is total and we can't touch it. You know, the insurance company owns it at that point. So we get a lot of, uh, <laughs> we get a lot of valet damage. We get a uh, lot damage from car dealerships, things like that as well. So there's a lot of cosmetic things too. And, uh, the cars, the really pricey cars with good insurance, even if there's just a slight dent in their hood, they're going to replace the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So there's like this big swath of metal that's unimpaired. It's like, where's it going to go? You know? So. Why not take it and use it?
1: What is your proudest piece that you have made so far that you're like, wow. Oh my gosh. Do you think you've had that
0: piece yet where you step back and you look at it and you're like,
1: damn, I'm good.
0: Yeah. I mean, in the very beginning, I was doing a lot more silversmithing and adding settings to the pieces and doing a lot of hand etching. And during that period, I was really proud of what I had accomplished. But I think most recently, one of the things that I'm really proud about was the collaboration I did with Lynn St. James. That was sort of a defining moment for me because she's an amazing person.
1: How did that go? Did she seek you out? Did you seek her out?
0: Um, So Cindy Sisson, her friend and manager, contacted me, and she's the one that also runs Shifting Gears. And, uh, she,
1: and by the way, let's give them a plug. Yeah. It's another great podcast. Oh yeah. And I've actually had some people like, yeah, they kind of do what you do, Jamie. I'm like, even if they are interviewing women, good. I'm going to promote them. Yeah. Do you know how many other men are out there promoting other men? Right. Community over competition, ladies. Society actually pits us against each other often, which is ridiculous. It is. We need to help lift each other up. I agree. And if you haven't listened to that podcast, I strongly recommend listening to it. Yeah. It's a great, well-put-together podcast representing women in a very classy way, which I love.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's women shifting gears and their whole goal is to, like you say, lift women up and tell their stories. But Cindy, she's been in this business for a long time. So she knows everybody. And so I met Cindy. She really loved Crash and she told Lynn about it. And this was a couple of years ago when Lynn was being honored at Amelia Island, Concord d'Elegance. So Cindy kind of came up with the idea and said, do you think we could collaborate with Lynn and you, and we could create a cuff just for Lynn. And so I said, that's a great idea. So we talked a bit and tried to figure out what are we going to do? You know, So first of all, I didn't have any probe metal, <laughs> which is what Lynn's just I think, drove, right? And so what I did was I used uh, two Mustangs, a black and a red, two GTs, since they were from Ford. So I used those as our base. And then we came up with a plan. We came up with a speedometer design and the numbers were her qualifying times for various events. Then at the very, at one end was her logo and her catchphrase, go for it. And then what we did was we made 90 of them because that's her number, 90, and everything is given a number. So it's one of 90, two of 90, three of 90 for example, like a like a limited print edition. Yeah. So now every time I see her wearing it or I see other women wearing it, it's like, I don't know. It's just, it's a great feeling. It's crazy. And it's hard to explain to someone.
1: What was it like for you the first time, whether it be online or in person or fill in the blank, that you actually saw someone wearing your jewelry?
0: Oh my gosh. You know, here's a really weird story. Okay. <laughs> I was at SEMA a few years back and we were going out to dinner, and I was wearing a Fred Ferrari cuff. And Dan and I were waiting for our table, so we sat in the bar. And it was Halloween, you know. Seema's always around Halloween. Yep. End of October, beginning of November. Yep. So this couple was sitting next to us, and they were dressed up, and you know their outfits. And this guy looks over at me, and he goes, "Is that a crash piece you're wearing?" And I look behind me. I thought I was being punked, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Around, like you're like, really? Who's doing this to me, you know? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, Oh my god, I love Crash! And you know, and we started talking, and he was from San Francisco and he'd seen my stuff there in a store, and it was just the weirdest thing, you know, like to see. I don't know, to be recognized, you know, it was really, really cool. So,
1: (laughs) In that conversation, did you eventually let him know that you were the artist that
0: makes them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) What was his reaction when he found out that you're the one? Oh, he was great. He just wanted to talk, you know, he just wanted to talk about it. Yeah, You know, how is it made and all this stuff? Because most people are really curious because They don't really know what they're looking at. That's why I like to go to shows because I need to explain it. Yeah. And you can just see the realization come into their mind. Like when you're explaining, no, this is actually a part of the car. Yeah. Oh, did you paint it? No, no. This is actually the original factory finish, you know, and they look really puzzled. And then I usually have a visual aid that I show. Yeah. And then they go, oh my God, you know, it's (laughs) It's really kind of fun. Wow. Let's talk just a little bit about
1: that process because we talked about it in the pre-interview where you had quite the trial and error period of time because all the different ways of cutting the metal that you were trying to use was actually damaging the paint, which ultimately works against what your main focus was. And that was preserve the paint, the original paint
0: from the vehicle. Exactly. Yes, yeah. so in the beginning, I mean obviously there's no rule book or instruction book for no recipes for how to do this. So it was all trial and error. So I would make the blank, which is the original shape, say the cuff, and then go to bend it, and then lo and behold, the paint would crack or fly off or flake off or you know whatever. I'd sand it, pieces would come off. So it took a while to figure out how to keep the paint on. And also I had to learn about what we call cold connections, which is using rivets to attach other metal to the base cuff or earrings or whatever it is I'm making, a necklace, because I couldn't use an open flame. I mean, I solder with silver and gold, but I could not use that technique with making the car jewelry because it would burn the paint. So it was a matter of trying to figure out ways to get the paint to stretch almost, if that makes sense, or to see sort of be more malleable, so it'll hang on when I would manipulate it.
1: Wow, yeah, what an experience! Is there a particular type of jewelry that is your favorite to make?
0: Uh, yeah, cuffs are definitely my favorite.
1: Cuffs are your favorite, yeah, mm.
0: yeah. The earrings and necklaces and cufflinks are pretty small pieces of metal, so you know when you're working, the smaller you go, the harder it gets, and also when you're sanding. Small pieces of aluminum, let me tell you, it gets hot. <laughs> so yeah.
1: I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so what's next for Christy and Crash? I want
0: to keep expanding. I want to figure out a way to make things a little easier on myself in terms of production. So I'm trying to figure that aspect out. I just want to get it out there to as many people as I can. And um, I love... Being around car people. And I want to keep doing as many car events as I can and just keep creating new designs out of different cars, different colors, whatever I can get my hands on.
1: I think this is a great time to launch into the red line round. I'm excited to see your responses around this. Redline rounds, just five rapid fire questions. No right or wrong answer. Just whatever pops into your head's the right answer. Okay. You ready? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know who loved this? As soon as I said red line, Lynn St. James is like, yeah, let's do this. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like I all about her. it.
0: I can see her doing that.
1: And then you have other women like, what? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> it's not that bad. All right. Who or what has been your inspiration throughout your journey in the industry? Mm, who's been
0: my inspiration? I would say my husband. Actually, he's uh, always been in my corner, propped me up when I was ready to quit, and just offered a lot of continual, unconditional support.
1: When you mention your husband in the collision shop, and mm-hmm. it seems obvious naming your jewelry crash. Yeah. Was it that easy to name it?
0: No. <laughs> It wasn't. And to tell you the truth, I can't take credit for the name. It was a friend of mine that came up with the name.
1: Well, high five to a friend who named your company. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just kind of stumbled upon it then.
0: Yeah. He built my first website. Uh-huh. And so we were, we were trying to come up with a name and he's in advertising. I mean, that's his job, you know, so. That's just shtick. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we kicked it around and that's what we came up
1: with. That's awesome. Well, it's a sweet name. Yeah. It's simple. Yeah. And sweet. Christy, where do you go or what resources do you use when you want to learn something new
0: or you get stuck on a job? (laughs) YouTube. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, I go to YouTube or if it's a question about a particular car, paint, for example, I might talk to my husband or the general manager at work. He's like an encyclopedia when it comes to everything car related. Or I'll go to if it's a jewelry issue, I have a lot of books I can go to. Or also groups. I'm on a few jewelry groups as well. What excites you most about what you do? Gosh, what excites me the most? The constant challenge. It's a challenge every day because you know, you never know if what you're gonna make is gonna hold up or if right in the middle of it is gonna crack. I have a box where we just toss those suckers, you know, it's like, damn it. There it goes. And, uh, And that's the box we go back to sometimes and revisit and say, okay, what can we do with these mistakes to make, you know, it's like a mistake can sometimes turn into something really cool. Right. So I always save those. So I would say that the challenge always excites me. And also just being able to share it with people and get their reaction. That is really a lot of fun. I
1: love that. What's a personal habit or practice that has helped you significantly in the industry when you feel stuck or discouraged? A personal habit. First
0: of all, I think when that happens, I walk away because if I try to push through, it's usually going to not end well. So I usually walk away if I'm really stuck or let's say I just, I don't have any desire to create, I I'll take a few days off, you know, if I can and, uh, just sort of try and think of other things or I'll revisit my art history books and maybe, you know, get a little inspiration, you know, anything to sort of get the creative juices flowing again, but not get angry at myself for not having it at that moment. That's the key. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Like giving
1: yourself that grace to, right. It took me a while to do that kind of, push through it. Yeah, exactly. And finally, what's your parting advice to other femme mechanics finding their way
0: in this industry? Well, I think a lot of other women have said this before, but it's still valid. And I think it is, you know, listen to yourself. Not everybody knows, you know, like when I first started doing this, I didn't have the self-confidence that maybe I have now. And everybody has an opinion, right? Everybody thinks they can tell you how to run your business. And I used to listen to all this stuff. Then I stopped. Fine, thank you for that. You know, Thank you for your input. But at the end of the day, I know best. And I have to just trust myself. And um, I would say just trust yourself. It's simple, but it's
1: such sound advice. Yeah. And yet sometimes so hard to do, isn't it?
0: It is because you start questioning yourself like, oh, they know more than me. You know, when in fact, no, they don't.
1: Imposter syndrome's a real thing. Yeah. And when you have those moments, Christy, where that self-doubt sometimes creeps in or what do you do to like move through it and get on the other side? I'll talk to
0: a friend. Uh, I have a good friend. She is a she makes furniture. She knows what it's like. She's been in business for years and she's in a male dominated industry And people don't take her seriously, but she's from Brooklyn. And let me tell you, (laughs) you do not get on her bad side. So I usually talk to April and she kind of puts me back to where I need to be. Is she the tough love or the cheerleader or both? Kind of both, but she's also the tough love, but she's funny. Yeah. You know, and so usually I end up feeling much better and laughing and, but she gets it, you know, not all my friends get it, Mm -hmm. but she understands what it's like to create every day.
1: Yeah. Also being in a male dominated industry.
0: Yes. She's the only female there and and everybody works for her is a guy.
1: Yeah. It's not for the faint of hearts. No. You build up some callus, but the trick to all of it is you just keep showing up. Yep. That's the key. Where and how can people find Crash
0: Jewelry? Online, crashjewelry.com. And uh, I do events as well. Um, If you're in LA or the Southern California area, I'm going to be at Cars in the Canyon, which is, I believe, October 8th. And then Cars and Copters, which is the following weekend. And then I'll be in Hilton Head. Is that literally Cars and Helicopters? Yep. It's really cool. cool. It's really cool. I mean, mostly these exotic cars. So it's all day revving, and just, you know, <laughs> hot concrete. It's, it's a lot of fun. I'm chuckling
1: because only in LA. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. It's like Fast There's- and Furious goes to the beach, you know. So, right.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's hilarious. Like, I'm just imagining here in Columbus, Ohio or Detroit, Michigan. It's like, <laughs> no. <Yeah.
0: laughs> no, these helicopters come in and land right there by the beach. It's so cool. That is amazing. Yeah, I love that show. So I'll be doing that. And then the first weekend of November, I'll be at Hilton Head Island for the Hilton Head Concord d'Elegance.
1: Yes, because I asked you if you were going to SEMA and you're like, nope, I'm going out west and you're coming out east. I know, (laughs) I know. I got to figure this out because I really, really want to go to SEMA next year. We can high five in the air, sister. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Oh, Christy, thank you so much for accepting my invite being on the show and being willing to share your story i love your story i love what you're doing and i am so glad that you're doing it the industry needs you and what you're doing
0: well thank you i I really appreciate it jamie and i'm very honored to be on your podcast and i've had a great time too (laughs) (laughs) thank you christy shemke owner of crash jewelry and i'm a femme canic
1: Sarah Morrison is in the driver's seat next. Sarah is the president of Baja Forge, vice president of LGE CTS Motorsports, and a volunteer worker. She was born and raised in an automotive family, and at age 13, Sarah helped her dad in building her first car, a 1970 Chevy El Camino. Since then, her interests and passion in the automotive industry have grown. And in 2017, she won SEMA Business Network Women of the Year Award. And in 2021, Sarah won the prestigious SEMA Person of the Year Award for her contributions in the automotive industry. Be sure to check out next week's episode as Sarah shares with us her inspiring and amazing journey. Until next time, FemCanics. Thanks for listening to the Femcanic Garage podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Femcanic Garage. Check out our website at femcanic.com for swag and the links to the resources shared during this episode. If you want to help grow this community, subscribe, rate, and review. And most importantly, share this podcast. Spread the word. This is Jamie B. signing off. Are you a femme